Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Over the last 26 years, we attracted roughly 6 billion US dollars of foreign investors. Poon Soonens is a director of Deep Sea Industrial Zones, a Belgian company that develops industrial parks in Vietnam. Deep Sea has been operating there for more than two decades, but is now experiencing a sudden surge in interest. It is very striking that in the last, let's say, four years, we have attracted more investors than in the 20 years before. It's a tsunami of mainly Taiwanese, Chinese, Korean companies who want to expand their production facilities outside of China. So what's going on? Well, it's not a sudden craving for ban me. What's driving Kern's office telephone to ring off the hook is actually the direct result of US policy towards China. We're taking in right now hundreds of billions of dollars. We're taking in billions of dollars of tariffs. Since the Trump administration put in place a round of tariffs aimed at Chinese imports in 2018, Chinese companies and companies from countries with operations in China have been looking for ways to keep trading with the US without incurring eye-watering costs. The Biden administration issued an executive order Wednesday aiming to curb high-tech investment in China. Now, under President Biden, the policy has expanded to keep China locked out of US supply chains in a few key high-tech industries. Kern Cernens has had a front-row seat in the urgent scramble for industrial space just beyond China's borders. Companies coming to visit Deep Sea, asking for land as quick as possible, they all have the same story. It's not because they like Vietnam that much, but it's because their Western clients insist on having the production of their products outside of China. In the geopolitical tussle between the US and China, it looks like the policy of US decoupling or de-risking its economy from China is actually working. Business operations are being relocated to other Southeast Asian countries, India and Mexico. But how deep does this decoupling go? Seen another way, the exodus from China is simply driving closer integration between the Chinese economy and those of America's allies. And with supply chains just getting longer and production more expensive, does this make countries like Vietnam the only real winner? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. And in today's show, is America's China strategy working? First, we hear how headline figures are telling us one story about falling U.S.-China trade. Then we find out why decoupling from China isn't as straightforward as it seems. The countries that U.S. is increasingly importing from actually import more from China and are very connected to Chinese supply chains. And finally, we explore the economic consequences of cutting China out. If you want increasingly to lock out China from key markets, you're going to have to be prepared for 
costly measures. Hi, Tom. Hi, Alice. Hey, Mike. Hello. How have you both been? Tom, or should I say boss this week, how are you enjoying being in the big seat as business editor? Uh, yes, for listeners this week, I am filling in for our business editor, Jan, who's on holiday at the moment. All seems to be going well, touch wood. It's certainly keeping me busy, though. Well, I'm sure you're doing great, Tom. Not much new for me in D.C., just the usual work. I haven't assumed mass power, which I'm now wielding over my colleagues. But uh, there have been a lot of thunderstorms. That's been new. A lot of storm warnings, buckets of rain, lightning, all the works. This sounds like the sort of weather that would be a sort of ordinary mid-afternoon treat in Singapore. Well, well, on that topic of inclement weather, today we are going to talk about the stormy relationship between the US and China. How's that for a, uh, a segue, Mike? Yes, we are. I am sure that we've all had at some point the uncomfortable experience of having to extract ourselves from a relationship of one kind or another, like trying to cancel your gym membership, leave an internet provider. It's an experience that can involve high emotions, the occasional cancelled credit card and desperate demands that you stay. And let's not even get started on romantic breakups as well. It's been something of a summer of discontent for major celebrities, in particular for Taylor Swift, who seems to have broken up with not one but two squeezes this year. We do know through the slightly creepy listener profiling that happens by Spotify that we do in fact have a lot of Taylor Swift listeners to the podcast. That's The Economist reliably bringing you the very latest Taylor Swift news with a lag of no more than four or five months. <laughs> to be fair, I'm sure any true Swifty would not be waiting to uh, hear the news from their favourite Economist podcast. Well, We Are Never Getting Back Together is not just a standout single on Taylor's 2012 album, Red. It's also increasingly <laughs> the reality of US-China commercial relations. <laughs> I have to say, we are on fire with the segues this week. So, Mike, bring us up to speed then. What is the state of US policy towards China? What are they trying to achieve? Well, that's a good question. One of the only things that the Trump and Biden administrations have agreed on is that the US is, in different ways, too commercially exposed to China. That resulted in something called decoupling, sometimes under the Trump administration and uh, former US trade representative Robert Lighthizer. It's always meant something around securing American supply chains against China. It started particularly in 2018 with lots of noise and fanfare with those extensive tariffs on a very large share of US imports from China. More recently, you've heard a lot about de-risking the economy rather than decoupling, diversifying supply chains, concepts like reshoring production, bringing things that are made in China back to the US, friendshoring, which has meant bringing production out of China and to countries that America finds more reliable, and some element of self-sufficiency on national security grounds. But it's been a big blend of different priorities from the two different administrations, all sort of bundled together under those decoupling and de-risking words. It was hard to miss the pivot to a more antagonistic US-China policy under President Trump. But to an extent, some of that is continuing under Biden, although perhaps with a bit less fanfare. Yeah, I think it's often missed out that obviously all of those Trump tariffs, they remain in place. So it's best to think of Biden's policies towards China as stacked on top of the ones which were largely already brought in during the Trump administration. 
The current administration has actually expanded to focusing on export controls of very sensitive technologies and foreign investment restrictions, both from the US to China and from China to the US. The latest of those arrived on August the 9th, which was an executive order introducing screening for outbound investment and banning some investment into Chinese quantum computing and artificial intelligence projects, as well as very advanced semiconductor chips. America wants to weaken China's grip on sensitive industries and in a motivation that largely goes unspoken to prepare for a possible invasion of Taiwan by the People's Republic of China. So there's been a sort of expansion of the policies against China under Biden, but with probably substantially less noise. And on the face of it, it looks like those policies are working, right? Bilateral trade between the US and China seems to have dropped precipitously. Yeah, absolutely. If you look as recently as 2018, when those tariffs came in, the Trump tariffs, about two thirds of American imports from a group of low cost Asian countries came from China. Last year, just over half did. In global trade terms, that's a really significant drop. Investment flows have adjusted, if anything, even more rapidly. In 2016, Chinese firms invested $48 billion in America. Six years on, that figure has shrunk to about $3 billion. For the first time in a quarter of a century, China is no longer one of the top three investment destinations for most members of the American Chamber of Commerce in China, which I think shows just how bad things are going. Compare that to most of the last couple of decades when China was really claiming the lion's share of new investment projects in Asia. Last year, it received less than India or Vietnam. That's from a number of countries, not just America. And instead, America's turning towards India, Mexico, and Southeast Asia in particular, countries like Vietnam and Thailand, to try and fill some of the role that previously China was playing in American supply chains. So, I mean, that all sounds a bit like an advert for US policymaking working kind of exactly as it was intended to, but I suppose it'd be a a very short episode today if that were the case. So what do you think is really going on behind the scenes here, Mike? No, that's it. That's the end. It's August. So if you want to clock off, go (laughs) to the beach now uh, for the afternoon, go ahead. Uh, No, no, sadly, we should be so lucky. Instead of being slashed, Trade links between China and America are enduring, but in considerably more tangled forms. There's basically, I think, three ways of looking at this. There's the most egregious, which is transshipment, which is essentially the pure rebadging of Chinese goods as coming from another country. Another country imports something from China. It's then re-exported and it's counted as an export from somewhere else. There's a good example of this late last year when the Department of Commerce found that quite a lot of Vietnamese solar panel exports were really overwhelmingly Chinese content. The second variety of entanglement comes from what are known as intermediate goods. So when a company is manufacturing something, they need to get their inputs, their raw materials, etc., etc., from somewhere. So if you look at sectors like electric vehicles and electronics, where there's a big growth of those industries in places like Southeast Asia and Mexico, a lot of the parts that go into those final products actually still come from China. And in many cases, the relationship is getting considerably stronger there as those countries are exporting far more of those products to the US. And in the final, most difficult form of entanglement, you have things like critical minerals and rare earths. For example, there are minerals called gallium and germanium that are used in semiconductor production. 
And China processes the vast majority of those. So in the most difficult circumstances, Chinese companies provide something that is very, very difficult to find anywhere else in the world. And just because they're going through a third country to be turned into a sort of final good doesn't mean really that the US is any less exposed to Chinese participation in those very long supply chains. So in general, rather than America having cut China out of its supply chain, it's just sort of added more players in various intermediate steps. That certainly seems to be happening. You don't have to take our word for it. There is some evidence for all of this. I spoke with Caroline Freund. She's dean of the UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy. And earlier this year, she published, along with her co-authors, some research into this unfolding dynamic. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So in the aggregate, Chinese trade with the US has fallen. That's been taken as sort of evidence of decoupling. Investment between the two has sort of absolutely collapsed. Does that represent decoupling in your view? Is this a sign of the strategy working? There's some evidence of it working. So proportionately, China's share of US imports have fallen since 2017 from about 22% to 16% in 2022, which is a huge decline in a short period of time. But in some sense, trade is still connected, even in those areas where imports have been reduced because the countries that U.S. is increasingly importing from actually import more from China and are very connected to Chinese supply chains. So in some sense, there's decoupling, but there's also more opacity in trade. So you wrote a paper recently with co-authors at the World Bank and the IMF on precisely this sort of topic. What was the conclusion of that? What did you look at? What did you find? Yeah, so we looked at very detailed U.S. import data, and we looked first at the products with tariffs. So there's much sharper declines in Chinese exports to the U.S. in the products that the U.S. has tariffs on. There's also sharper declines in so-called strategic goods. These are advanced technology products that are identified by the U.S. and they're things like semiconductors or chemicals. So there's even sharper declines in those products. But in precisely the products that there are bigger declines, we also see that the countries that are expanding their exports to the U.S., are more integrated in supply chains with China in those precise industries and also importing more of the exact products that they're exporting more of to the U.S. And that's actually especially true in the strategic products. So it's in exactly the sectors where the Biden administration wants to reduce risk that the supply chain ties with China are actually increasing. Yeah, that's exactly correct. So we do see that it's in the strategic industries where connection to supply chains in China and increases in imports from China uh, driving exports from those countries to the U.S. What does this mean for the concept of friendshoring? 
That's something the US administration has been keen to encourage. Does this sort of trend pose a significant problem for that as a strategy? Not necessarily, because it could be the case that initially those countries get imported intermediates or mainly the products and just do some limited assembly and send to the U.S., but they learn something and over time the value added in those countries increases. So I do think that countries, Vietnam, Taiwan, India, Korea, Mexico, Canada, these countries have benefited significantly from the decoupling from China. It's just there's this additional effect of supply chains, which I don't think should be overlooked. And we learned during COVID that not knowing your suppliers a few stages away could have devastating consequences because of parts and components you couldn't get because your supplier couldn't get something. And I think we're in some sense lengthening supply chains, not shortening them with some of these policies. And ultimately, if this policy is going to succeed on the security side and sufficiency side, you'd need to go down all the different layers of production. So given all of that, how can you get the sort of outcomes that the US wants, whether it's in de-risking in certain areas or broader decoupling from China? Can you get those outcomes at all? Is there something that could be done that isn't being done at the moment, given what we think are the sort of issues with the policy as it stands? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are carrots and there are sticks. So we're definitely pulling out the stick with respect to China, but we could be pulling out a lot more carrots with respect to other trade partners. This is effectively what the TPP and now CPTPP, the Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership, was all about, about liberalizing with other partners to set the rules of trade, to expand integration with nations we're friendly with. Now, to do that, we also have to offer some carrots, which are typically market access. And for some reason, the government's been hesitant to do that. So I think we could be doing a lot more instead of industrial policy and focusing on producing things at home, we could be focusing on creating really efficient economic supply chains with countries that we don't face the same kind of risks that we face with China. That's really interesting. So there's a way in which security goals with regard to China specifically would be easier to achieve if the last seven years or so of American withdrawal from these multilateral trade deals hadn't happened, then it would be easier to get other Asian economies on side as far as supply chains go from within the framework of something like CPTPP. Yeah, I mean, you'd be giving other countries market access to the U.S. economy, which is a huge consumer market in exchange for access to their markets, which would be good for U.S. producers. And with that, you also buy trust and cooperation in other areas such as security or the environment. And I think as well, it doesn't do any harm. So if we take a step back and we say, is decoupling even what we should be doing? It depends how risky we think China is becoming. 
and whether we want to just be very careful about a small number of really strategic products, the kind of small gardens, high fence approach, or whether we want to really broadly decouple. And I don't think there's been enough discussion about that, as well as while we're doing that, let's also do things that are good no matter what and integrating more with our friends so that goods are produced most efficiently and resources are used most efficiently is a win-win no matter what, as well as creating more cooperation on other areas that we care about. Caroline, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Tom, Alice, I found that point from Caroline on the US participation in multilateral trade deals really interesting. And I think for me, that's one of the things that comes up most often when you talk to Asian businesses and Asian policymakers, essentially that the US is not a particularly reliable partner on trade and hasn't been for quite a while. And that when companies and even more so governments are thinking about how to hedge themselves against a sort of conflict that they don't really often play a major part in between the US and China, and they don't really want to take sides in. One of the things holding them back from participating more in these US de-risking policies is the fact that they're not totally certain that the US will stick the course, and also that the US hasn't really offered them very much to participate. What many of these countries want is greater market access to the US, still by some distance the biggest consumer market in the world, a huge market for Asian goods that they'd like to get greater access to. And it does make me think that it would be a good way to sort of at least signal a sort of long-term intent to engage with Asian allies and friends in the region. I think that the difficulty of that is obviously that you have a US political situation where Major trade deals are essentially completely off the menu, basically for both parties, really, but maybe particularly the Republican Party. So it does make encouraging that sort of more positive relationship, I think Caroline described it as the carrot as well as the stick, much more difficult. Yeah, I agree with all that. It's interesting to me thinking about this in the context of what happened during COVID when companies realized just how little visibility they had over their supply chains. You know, most companies had a good grasp of their immediate suppliers or what's called the first tier of their supply chain. But many of the problems that led to snarlats were caused by their suppliers' suppliers and their suppliers and so on. And you'd have this one factory in China that made some very specific type of glue that was you know, essentially in some other component and so on and so on. And it turned out that companies had all sorts of hidden dependencies like this that had resulted from this incredible fragmentation of their supply chains that, that had occurred over the last few decades of globalization. And and now I think as the West is exploring how to extricate itself from China, I, I think it's incredibly difficult because somewhere in the supply chain of almost any good, there's bound to be a dependence on China. Yeah, I think it was really clear from listening to Caroline that the efficacy of decoupling is really unclear. It is very difficult to get a handle on just how much the US has actually been able to extricate itself from China. 
the clearer impact is the benefit to countries like the Vietnams of the world or other players that have managed to get essentially a sort of a toehold in supply chains as a result of these policies. And I realised that at the moment that toehold might be pretty small. It could be as small as them literally just relabeling packages from China and shipping them off to America. But I do wonder whether if this remains the status quo for policy for a while, whether they might be able to sort of expand that footing a little into doing actual steps in the supply chain, even more than they sort of managed to already. Whether or not that achieves any of what the actual sort of goal of the policy was in terms of safeguarding supplies of sensitive stuff or critical uh, minerals and things, that's less clear. But I do feel as though in the early stages of this, the impact that places like Vietnam or other similar countries might have on supply chains will be minimal, but it could expand over time. So we've been talking about the economics of America's China policy, but listeners, if you're interested in hearing more about the political backdrop for all of this, then you should check out our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. This week, the Checks team is taking an in-depth look at how America's China policy is actually made, what political forces are at work and where the US approach to China is heading next. It promises to be a fascinating listen. And if even that isn't enough to sate your voracious appetite for US-China content, (laughs) then you can keep up to date with all of The Economist's US-China coverage and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll delve a bit deeper into the small yard, high fence approach to economic ties with China and how it's being applied in the computer chip industry. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the break, we heard how a small yard, high fence approach is how the Biden administration likes to describe its current de-risking strategy towards China, select some security-critical sectors and shield them from Chinese influence in the supply chain. Semiconductor chips are up there as probably the single most important product that requires this treatment. To find out more, I spoke to Chris Miller. He's Associate Professor of International History at Tufts University and the author of a new book on the subject, Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book, Chip Wars. And I suppose as well, could you tell us why semiconductors in particular have become such an area of preoccupation in this commercial back and forth between the US and China? Well, today's semiconductors are important economically because they're in almost every type of manufactured good. If you look across the economy, whether it's autos or industry or high-tech, semiconductors are critical to everything. But they're a rare type of manufactured good that 
China can't produce itself, at least when you're talking about the most types of cutting edge chips. And so China spends as much money each year importing chips as it spends importing oil. That's something China's leaders want to change. They've been investing billions and billions of dollars a year to domesticate cutting edge chip technology. But right now they're reliant on key trading partners, Taiwan, Korea, the United States, Japan, to import them. And so this struggle to uh, control the future of the chip industry is partly about trade flows and commercial profits, but it's also a political struggle because all the governments in question perceive chips not just as an important trade good, but also as a strategic priority for their defense and intelligence systems. So the US was once a big producer of chips. Taiwan does a lot of it now. So the American government is making reshoring the chip industry a priority. The Chips Act will pour $50 billion into chip R&D and manufacturing over the next decade. The world's largest chip maker, a Taiwanese company called TSMC, is looking to expand in the US as a result of these subsidies. US policy also aims to restrict the transfer of technology from the US to China, like the cutting edge machine tools used to manufacture chips. What do you make of these reshoring efforts? First, to put the US efforts in context, they're not alone. Everyone is doing it. But it starts from a pretty strong position across the value chain, because when you look at chip design, the software tools, the machine tools, the U.S. is by far the leader across the value chain. And so there's a lot of pieces with which to build a successful fabrication industry in the U.S. I think the challenge that the U.S. faces is that it's simply more expensive to build chips in the U.S. than in East Asia. The best studies that have been done have found that it's 20 or 30% more expensive. And so the CHIPS Act is trying to use government incentives to close that cost gap. And incentives are certainly going to do that while they're spent. The question is whether we're going to see further rounds of investment after the incentives stop being provided. And that's very much an open question. It's really not a surprise that companies are deciding to build more factories and they're receiving money to do so. The harder part is building out an ecosystem that makes it commercially viable for companies to keep investing in the U.S., even if costs are higher in the long run, and they will be. You've got to find a way to convince companies that there are other benefits that justify those higher costs. And that's the key challenge the U.S. faces right now. So the Biden administration likes to talk in terms of de-risking about a small yard with a high fence, tight restrictions on some security-related products rather than a wholesale decoupling. Do you think companies are receiving that message and are you seeing a difference? Or do you think there's a sort of wider decoupling on the way? Well, I think one of the big analytical mistakes people often make when addressing this subject is to look at it as a U.S.-China dynamic, when in reality, you know, I think if you had to put the order in chronological terms, it would be a China-U.S. dynamic because it was China that started the decoupling processes and semiconductors before the U.S. But I am struck by the extent to which in the electronics industry, there are major shifts underway, both at the chip level, but also at the device assembly level. Today, almost all the world's smartphones are assembled in China. The vast majority of PCs are assembled in China. And so even if the chips are made in Taiwan or Korea, they end up in China as part of the assembly process. I think if you look at what companies are doing right now, where they're investing today for the production they want to have in five years' time, what you find is that new investment into China has really collapsed. They're building new facilities in Vietnam, in India, in Thailand, in Mexico, but not in China. And that is an effort to begin to bifurcate supply chains. They're going to have a China-focused supply chain for sales in China and a supply chain outside of China for sales outside of China. And that's going to be a, a very long process. It won't be a complete separation, but basically every company in the electronics industry is trying to reduce their reliance on China for assembly, for component supply, and have a clear separation 
between their China and non-China businesses. So for Asian countries that are physically near China, but for example, with a tight security relationship with the US, I'm thinking particularly of Korea and Japan here, they've got some incentives which tip in favor of seeing Chinese companies as a competitive threat and some in favor of keeping their own very deep industrial networks going. Those go quite a long way into China. So how do you think that balances out over the longer term? So I think that every company wants to keep its end market in China. And indeed, governments in Asia, as well as the U.S. government, are supportive of firms trying to continue to sell to Chinese customers, except in very niche high-tech areas. Next to that, companies are realizing that they're facing competition from Chinese competitors. And so every firm in Asia, every multinational that's operating in China is, is trying to balance those two aspects, limit the capacities of Chinese competitors while maintaining access to the Chinese end market. I think next to that, within Asia, you've got different political views among different governments, which shapes the context in which companies operate. So in Japan, which is doubling defense spending as a share of GDP, precisely because they see China as a primary security threat, there's really no doubt where the government stands on this issue. Whereas in Singapore, the government is very open about trying to play both sides off of each other and get the best deal from both Beijing and Washington. So companies from different countries face different domestic politics as well as they try to navigate their business operations in China. So you're quite right in that comment that people often look at this as a US-China thing, but in fact, the decoupling or de-risking in semiconductors certainly started as a Chinese aim. Now the US has responded, you've had the CHIPS Act, you've got the export controls. How does China respond to all of that? A lot of people are focused on the way China might respond by imposing its own controls, controls on gallium and germanium, which are two materials used in semiconductor production, which are currently dominated by China, and China is announcing restrictions on their export abroad. I think this is actually the less significant Chinese response. More interesting is going to be how does China continue to subsidize its own domestic industries and win market share abroad? And there are two industries right now where China is investing a lot of money, a lot of focus. One is electric vehicles, which are deeply interrelated with the chip industry because of all the semiconductor content in EVs. And we've seen China win really substantial EV market share, especially in Europe over the past year. Second place is in low-end semiconductors, where China does have the capability to produce domestically. And right now, there's huge investment already underway, factories under construction in China in low-end chips. And so a key question over the next couple of years is, as these factories come online, will they win market share in Western markets or not? And if they do start to win market share, I think we should assume there's going to be backlash in uh, advanced economies saying, well, we don't want Chinese firms winning uh, market share when we're in the process of trying to rebuild our own chip industries. And so these are two areas of really substantial trade, uh, Chinese growth and exports, where I think we should expect more trade tension to come over the next couple of years. So as a last question, could you just give us your view? Do you think de-risking is working? Is there anything that could be done to make it work better? The big problem with the, the de-risking framework is that it suggests that the costs of these shifts are going to be low. But to pretend it's cost-free is just naive. It's delusional. And I think there's an impetus from political leaders to play up the fact that it's going to be low cost because their voters, their companies aren't excited about paying higher costs. But the reality is if you want major shifts in global trade, if you want increasingly to lock out China from key markets, you're going to have to be prepared for costly measures. And that, I think, is the major problem that the de-risking concept faces. It's just not honest about the cost it involves. Chris Miller, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So, Alice, Tom, from what we've heard today, would you rate America's China policy a success so far? Yeah, I think that question is pretty difficult to answer for many of the reasons that we've touched upon. And I guess as I was sort of listening to this week's show and thinking about the cover story that we ran a few weeks ago on political CEOs and how much they are sort of expressing their policy preferences through their businesses, it's just incredibly hard to figure out how much of this is kind of lip service, really. You know, you hear from a lot of CEOs that they are aware of and understand the sort of decoupling strategy and that for various reasons, they might want to secure their own supply chains. But it is extremely difficult to do. And the point that Chris made at the end there about how costly it's going to be for things like semiconductors, it's kind of clear that there are real trade-offs, our favourite word. Uh, there are real trade-offs with all of these kinds of policies. And it's difficult to balance some of the costs and difficulty of extracting your supply chains from China with the perceived benefits or the perception of going along with the way that American policy is sort of blowing. And so in general, I do think that is a very tricky question to answer. I think if I reflect on where I was at at the beginning of the show and now, I think it's probably been less successful than I thought for all of the reasons that you've teased out in particular, how some of the things like the fall in bilateral trade or fall in investment is probably kind of just smoke and mirrors. But yeah, I think it's very, very challenging to evaluate, but I'm really glad that we've had a go. I do think there's something to be said about the idea that even if countries like Vietnam and India and Mexico are today only taking on in some cases, the kind of final stages of assembly in a product over time, as they become more embedded in supply chains and gain exposure to the production process, they may well be able to take on a greater and greater share of that. I know, for example, in India, the government is asking companies like phone makers and car makers like Tesla that are setting up production in the country to, to also start making efforts to nurture local component suppliers there as well. So, Building that depth in the supply chain is going to take some time, but I think it could happen. Yeah, and I think actually that point gets to the very centre of, for me, why this is a big deal and why I think this isn't going as well as those headline figures suggest. If you look at a country like Korea or Taiwan, for example, which their exports are more complex and, and typically considerably higher up the value chain than China's, unlike sort of Vietnam or, or India, they don't need the highest value parts in the things they export to come from China. They're usually the source of them themselves. And yet they are also inextricably linked to China. You look at Korea, for example, and it's the supply now of less complex integrated circuits, which are part of what makes up a semiconductor that Korea relies on China for. This is something that Korean companies used to make, but now Chinese companies do. And you hear Korean policymakers and businessmen sort of worrying about Korea's reliance. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the highest value stuff that creates a sort of difficult reliance and creates supply chain vulnerabilities. And I think for that reason, the problem with this whole policy set is that the language around it is very hazy. There's no economic definition of what de-risking or resilience mean. These are foreign policy words that have been inserted into sort of economic policy. You know, The Economist, we were founded on a position of free trade, but free traders have understood that there are national security arguments against it since the days of Adam Smith and indeed accepted many of those arguments. I think what's happened with the US is 
It's gone from having essentially no industrial policy to having an industrial policy that applies to supply chains, even that the US is not directly involved in. So really deep into Asian production networks that the US doesn't play a part in other than buying the final goods. And it's done that at sort of breakneck speed in the space of less than a decade, going from managing almost nothing internationally to to managing everything. It would be a little amazing if they got it all right on the first go. What you have now is this patchwork of policies assembled over time. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to President Biden, is essentially standing on the shoulders of Robert Lighthizer, who designed a lot of the Trump policies. It remains to be seen on the very strictest de-risking. But as Chris Miller mentioned there, I think that the costs of all of this are not acknowledged often enough. And this is the difficulty of trying to prepare a sort of half war economy. It's very difficult to policymakers to talk openly about this, but the policies are designed to protect the US at least a little bit in the event of a full military conflict with China. You don't want to run a war economy in peacetime because it's very expensive. So this is an attempt to sort of do it on the cheap, which I think there are some strains in the policy already very, very clear. You've never had this sort of conflict, really, between such economically entwined countries. But I think we can be sure that this isn't going to end anytime soon, because it is really the one thing that basically all US politicians now agree on. But I think with that, it's about all we've got time for. Shall we do our statistics of the week? Who wants to go first? Yep, I'm happy to kick us off. So my stat of the week is on a completely unrelated topic. My stat is 90%, and that is the annual growth of job ads in the UK on LinkedIn that do not require a degree. Now, that's interesting because LinkedIn jobs are basically all white-collar ones, but quite a few firms like, say, IBM, are really starting to explore how they can tap into a wider talent pool, including people who haven't done a degree, which to me seems both very sensible and very uplifting. Yes. And if you're interested in learning more about whether or not it's necessary to have a degree, you should tune in to next week's episode, spoiler alert, where we will be tackling that question more uh, head on. But uh, that's a great stat, Tom. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. For my stat of the week this week, I decided to stay on theme with a China-related statistic, and it is 0%, which was the annual inflation rate for China for July. And that was actually a decline of 0.2% month on month. So China is flirting on the brink of deflation, which is kind of mad when you consider the problems that uh, everyone in the rest of the world is having with rampant inflation all over the developed world that is proving pretty tricky to get under control. It seems like the disparity is mostly explained by the differences in COVID stimulus. So in the Western world, people tend to give a lot of stimulus to consumers and businesses and kept monetary policy very easy and also didn't shut down their economies for three years. In China, they seem to be struggling with the opposite problem, having essentially locked down for three years. But still, you tend to think of the global economy as moving relatively in sync. And so it's sort of mad that we can have basically deflation in one of the world's biggest economies and real problems with torrid inflation everywhere else. So my statistic of the week is also something that the Chinese economy is having some difficulties with, but it's 21.3% and it's the urban youth unemployment rate in June. If you find yourself thinking that June is a little bit out of date, you'd rather hear the July figure, then bad news because you never will. 
the Chinese National Bureau of Statistics has discontinued the series. Surely a coincidence that June's level was the highest on record of the series. Statisticians work very hard on these things, and sometimes the series just needs tinkering with, needs a methodological change. We'll check in on that again, maybe in a few months, and see if they've worked it out. With that, I'd like to thank our guests, Caroline Freund and Chris Miller. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.